Father, we exist to bring you glory. We exist to bring you honor. We exist to bring you praise. This is the purpose for why you've created us. Father, in giving you praise and bringing you glory and bringing you honor, we find our greatest joy. So Father, this morning as we turn uh, the pages of your word, we open to see your plan and your purpose and your mission for your church. God, don't allow us to see this as anything less than an act of worship before a holy God. Help us to know that our worship is not just the songs that we sing. Father, but to live our lives according to your word as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to you as our act of worship, Lord. Take every corner of our lives, take every corner of our hearts, conform them to your image and to your will. So Father, we now use your word to shape us and mold us and to transform us, to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, to empower us with boldness by the power of your Holy Spirit, to take your gospel to the ends of the earth. So Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. We submit ourselves to your word. I ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. If you find your seats this morning, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, where we'll be again uh, together this morning. Um, if you're our guest, uh, what we've been doing for as a church family the last couple of weeks is walking through what is known to us in Scripture as the Great Commission. These are Christ's uh, purpose. This is his plan, his instructions to his disciples, extending to the church into today, our responsibility, the mission that we're called to fulfill uh, in our world and in our lives. And as we've broken down the Great Commission from Matthew 28 over the last couple of weeks, we've spent a good bit of time talking about how our mission as a local church needs to be the same as Christ's mission for his global church, and that mission is to preach the gospel and make disciples. But more specifically, we've said that we exist to glorify God, first and foremost, by being disciples who make disciples of all nations. And the emphasis on glorifying God is critical because while preaching the gospel and making disciples is the primary mission of the church, it is not, as we're going to see here in just a moment, the ultimate goal of the church. And when it comes to the subject of uh, global missions, probably the most influential book that's been written for my generation is John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad. And in this introduction of the book, he lays out his case for why the mission of preaching the gospel and making disciples, as critical as the mission is, is not the primary goal of the church. Here's what he says. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Missions begins and ends in worship. So the mission is to preach the gospel and make disciples. And it's important that we not get this out of order because there's a logical flow where one comes from the other. For disciples to be made, the gospel first has to be preached. And wrapped up in the preaching of the gospel is that God's greatest passion is for his own name and for his own glory, and that you and I have been created to worship him and bring him glory. Scripture says in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3, that the Lord has put eternity into man's heart. Many of you grew up with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asked the question, what is the chief end of man with the response being to glorify God 
and enjoy him forever. And this is possible because Psalm 1611 tells us that in his presence, in God's presence is the fullness of joy, that there's no more full joy than being in his presence and that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Every human being worships something. And by worship, I mean that there's something that serves as the primary foundation of our joy and is uppermost in our affections. It could be success, it could be comfort, it could be money, it could be attention, it could be sex. It could even be the desire to do good and serve others. But universal to the human experience is the aching feeling in our souls that no matter how much we get and no matter how much good that we do, it's never going to be enough and there's always gonna be a longing for more. You and I as temporary beings have been created with an insatiable longing in our soul that can only be satisfied by the eternal joy that's found in Jesus Christ. So as shorthand, yes, we exist to preach the gospel and make disciples, but more specifically, we exist to glorify God by being disciples who make disciples, as we're going to see today, of all nations. This is an important emphasis for us today, these three words, all nations, because I think as Christians here in the West, sometimes we have the tendency to forget that we're not the only Christians in the world, that there is just a little bit of a Western exceptionalism that tends to come with our culture and with our faith that, that causes us, I think, to forget that Christianity is actually flourishing uh, in every corner of the world. Today, in spite of intense persecution and opposition, the church in China, the church in Iran, the church in Central Africa is thriving, is growing. The church in China continues to explode in the face of intense government opposition. Even uh, today, pastors are being arrested. The public places of worship are being destroyed or having their door closed. And um, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary recently released their report on the status of global Christianity. And it's just becoming clearer and clearer very, very quickly that the global center of Christianity is rapidly shifting from uh, the North and North America and Europe into the global South where the church in Africa, the church in Asia, the church in South America is absolutely exploding. Globally right now, the spread of Christianity is only slightly outpacing the total population growth by less than 1%, but is, is still, even as Christianity continues to grow, not the fastest growing uh, current world religion. That goes to, uh, to Islam, to Sikhs, to Hindus. These are all growing faith groups as well. But interestingly enough, as our world is becoming, it's, it's abundantly clear through statistics, increasingly religious, uh, atheism is actually in decline. In spite of the rapid global population increase over the last 50 years, there's fewer self-avowed atheists in the world today than there were in 1970. Uh, roughly 138 million people in our world today identify as atheists. And at the pace that's going, that's expected to drop below 130 million by the year 2050. And I just think it goes to show us that in spite of every modern scientific advance, in spite of every philosophical argument, globally, it's becoming clear that it's all insufficient to satisfy the eternal longings of our souls. And it doesn't answer the question of why we're here and globally humanity is still looking for more. And so there's some things to be encouraged by. There's some things to be encouraged by is what we, we understand that there does seem to be an increasing openness to some sort of religious belief globally. That globally Christianity is growing. It's even thriving in many places where there are, are difficult circumstances that, are, that make it very difficult for Christians to, to faithfully follow Jesus. But in spite of the growth that is, is seen, the, the world population today stands at 7.7 .7 billion. And today, only two and a half of those 7.7 .7 billion identify as followers of Christ. So church, I want this just to rest on you for a little bit this morning. This means as we sit here today, the reality for over 5 billion people in our world is that if they were to die today, they would perish for eternity apart from Christ. 
that needs to sit heavy on us for just a moment. And out of that 5 billion, nearly half, 2.2 billion are classified as unreached with little to no access to the gospel. It's the world that we live in today. The central truth I want us to focus on this morning from the Great Commission here in Matthew chapter 28 is that the local church is a global mission. The local church is a global mission. What you and I are part of this morning is bigger than what's happening in the Beaufort YMCA on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock and 10.45. All across the world, in every corner of this world, in some of the darkest places of the world, the people of God are coming together to do what we're doing and to engage their community, to engage the world around them with the message of the gospel. You and I are united together as a family across multiple generations, across countries, across ethnicities, across racial barriers, across everything. We're united together by the blood of Jesus Christ, united together by his Holy Spirit as one global redeemed family. The local church is a global mission. For David Platt say that every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. And with these staggering numbers about the globally unreached, it's becoming obvious that our mission is just as urgent, if not more urgent now than it's ever been. And our calling is one that extends from both our neighborhoods into the nations. It's not just something we do only here or only there. It's a global mission. So let's read together again from the word of God. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Again, these, we're reading this a couple of times together uh, each week as we, we work through this message series. Our challenge to you is to memorize that, to internalize this, because this is what Christ has given for his church uh, in the first century and the 21st century until he comes again. So Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And again, what does he do with that authority? What instructions does he give him? He could have told them anything here, but what does he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Everybody say those words, of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Last week, we focused primarily on those two words, make disciples. And today we're going to focus on these next three words of all nations. Now, I promised uh, we were going to look at each component of the Great Commission every single week in depth. And we're really going to put that to the test because we're going to take one of the shortest words in the entire Great Commission and we're going to make an entire point out of it this morning, okay? I want to focus on this word of. Make disciples of all nations. If our calling is to go to the nations and to make them into disciples, then that at least in some sense implies that they are incomplete until they are made into disciples. So you could flip this in the opposite direction. Jesus had said, go into the nations and make them into disciples. I think a good local example a number of us could identify with. So when when recruits are handed off to the senior drill instructor, what are the instructions that are given there? Take these recruits and do what? Make them Marines, right? And we get it. Marines, y'all think you're better than us. We understand it's okay. It's cool. You've got something more that the rest of us don't have. That's fine. We're grateful for you. And there's a sense in which this is being implied here. We're to go to the nations and make them into disciples because until they are made into disciples, they are incomplete. Go and make disciples of all nations. But what kind of disciples? This means disciples of of Islam, disciples of Hinduism, disciples of Mormonism. No, we're, we're called specifically to make disciples of Jesus Christ. 
because Christ alone is our only path to salvation. So see first this morning from the Great Commission that our mission is exclusive. Our mission is exclusive. Make disciples of Jesus Christ of all nations. The culture we're living in today has a, a very little tolerance for claims of absolute truth. Very low tolerance for this. And, and this is going to be one of the most difficult components of the message of the gospel for you and I as we engage in our world today. This idea that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and no one else is a sure path to eternal life. It's increasingly considered radical extremism to even imply that there's one correct answer and that other answers might be wrong. Ravi Zacharias is a great Christian apologist. If you've not checked him out, go to YouTube and just watch some of his stuff today. But I heard him say this in a talk a couple of years ago that I think does a great job summarizing the cultural climate that we live in today. He said, Christians, he said, these days, it's not just that the line between right and wrong has been made unclear. Today, Christians are being asked by our culture to erase the lines and move the fences. And if that were not bad enough, we are being asked to join in the celebration cry by those who have thrown off the restraints that the religion had imposed upon them. It's not just that they ask that we accept, but they now demand of us to celebrate it too. This is the world we live in right now. But church, you and I have got to understand, since the first century, since Christ ascended into heaven, you and I have not been given the freedom to edit the gospel. You and I have not been given the freedom to start teaching Jesus as one of many ways to heaven or as, as not the only way to heaven. Because Jesus doesn't present himself this way. This is maybe the, the most famous statement that Jesus ever makes about himself in John 14, 6. And in this statement, he makes it abundantly clear there's one way to salvation and it's through me. He says in John 14, 6, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He presses this more even in John chapter 3, verse 18. We know John 3, 16 and verses 17 and 18, unfortunately, get a little bit ignored because Jesus said this too. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. So whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Church, these are not the words of some angry, backwoods, fundamentalist, fire-breathing preacher. These are the words of Christ himself, that he is the only way. He is the only truth. He himself is the life, that those who believe in him will not be condemned, but those who don't believe are already condemned because they've not believed in his name. And we have to understand our world is going to see this as hateful. Our world is going to see this as narrow-minded. Our world is going to see this as dangerous, but it does not change the fact that Christ himself has described himself as being the single exclusive one and only path to salvation. Christianity makes truth claims that contradict every other religious system. So how could we possibly have multiple contradictory systems all claiming to be true? That the very nature of truth necessitates some form of disagreement because by implying that something is true, we are also implying that other things are false. And it's, it's difficult because of the cultural climate we live in today, but we have to understand this is how Christ has presented himself. So as Jesus is calling us to make disciples of the nations, he's saying, go to those who follow other religious systems, who worship other gods, and tell them to worship me and follow me. Go to those who do not believe, who are living in unbelief, and tell them to believe in me. Christian, understand this morning, with as much love and grace as I know to muster up, but on the authority of God's word and on the authority of the words spoken by Jesus Christ, if you profess to be a follower of Christ, 
and yet you do as many modern Christians are doing, many pastors, even some pastors in this very community are doing today, teaching that Christ is one of many paths to salvation. If this is what you believe about Jesus, you are not saved because you have not believed in Jesus Christ in the way that he's presented himself. He is our one and only hope of salvation. He is not one way among many. He is the only way. Why is this important for us? Why is this important for us? Because when we forget this, when we forget that Christ alone is our hope for salvation, that Christ alone is our hope to to be free of, of condemnation, we lose our urgency as a church. We lose the urgency as followers of Jesus. And listen, this is what I fear has happened a little bit in our culture today. Many of us grew up in churches where, you know, pastors would get up and they would talk about hell with the same joy and enthusiasm that they would talk about a trip to Disney World, right? And many of us grew up in these contexts and it was used as a tool for fear and for manipulation and to browbeat people. And, and listen, we should call that out rightly so. We should correct that. But I fear that this is what's happened is that we've been so afraid of being labeled that or we've been so afraid of, of, of people thinking negatively of this for that, that we just don't talk about it at all. Jesus talked about this subject of hell more than any other person in all of scripture. But this is, this is urgent. The, the church of Jesus Christ, there's no other organization on the planet that's sharing the news that we have. This is what's been entrusted to us, to call people to follow Jesus Christ because he alone can save So our mission is exclusive. And second, let's see from this passage that our mission is extensive. Make disciples of all nations. How many nations? All of them. Go and make disciples of all nations. We we made mention of this a couple of weeks ago, but this is not limited to just the 195 countries on the map. The language that's used here, Matthew 28, this is the calling to the pantata ethne, meaning all peoples all ethnicities. And so if you uh, just look globally at where we're at today, there's a much broader sense of this being a mission for all peoples. If you don't count people groups twice uh, for being represented in different countries, there's over 16,000 distinct people groups today with over 7,000 of them currently classified as unreached with minimal or no access to the gospel. If you want to go online, uh, Joshua Project is a, a great website that'll help you break down some of those numbers in depth. And you can see uh, where the, the central focus of that is uh, within, uh, within our world today. And so you can get a lot more detailed information. But throughout scripture, it's abundantly clear from start to finish that God has a heart for the nations. God has a heart for the nations. We saw some of this last week, but how in Genesis 1, he gives Adam and Eve the command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. He gives the same command uh, to Abraham or to Noah in Genesis 9 that he calls Abraham and he promises to make him a great nation, promises to bless all of the nations of the earth through him. And then through Isaiah, his calling to the nation of Israel is to be a light to the nations. And then in the great commission here, Jesus is telling his disciples to go to the nations. And then the whole rest of the New Testament is a picture of his disciples fulfilling filling that command. If you want to uh, carry out the Great Commission a step further, we're going to focus on this verse a bit in a few weeks. But in Acts 1.8, right before Jesus ascends to be with the Father, he expands on these instructions a bit. He, he tells his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And he tells them, here's your instructions. You will be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem. So that's local. Judea and Samaria. So that was uh, broader territory. So in their, their nation, surrounding region, and to the end of the earth. 
And these instructions become the foundation of what we see in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is uh, the history book of the New Testament. It's divided roughly into thirds where the first third of the book really focuses on their mission in Jerusalem. The next third focuses more on their mission in Judea and Samaria. And the rest of the book really focuses on their mission to the ends of the earth. And they fulfilled this mission. We, We find as they go, one of the greatest evidences for the authenticity of the gospel in the first century, which was the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles. These are two groups that historically hated each other. I mean, every barrier that you can possibly imagine, every every racial tension, every ethnic tension that you can imagine existed between Jew and Gentile. And yet everywhere we see Christians going in the first century, that is being, that relationship's being reconciled. It's, it's a beautiful picture all through the New Testament where we see the gospel breaking down barriers of race and of ethnicity and gender and socioeconomic status. Because the gospel requires that you and I see the intrinsic worth of every human being because we've all been made in the image of God. We all see the image of God in man and the gospel requires that we celebrate this. Now, I think it's fitting in the same week, every single year as a country, we as followers of Christ, we observe in the same week, the sanctity of human life and the remembrance of Martin Luther King. I think it's very, very fitting that we do both of these things in the same week because both of these serve as this reminder that every single human being from womb to tomb has been fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Understand Christians, we're not just pro-birth, we're pro-life. We're pro-quality of life. We're for the flourishing of life in all places. And the gospel requires that we look at every single person, both born and unborn, as being made in the image of God, as being fearfully and wonderfully made. This means for us that, that this movement, it, the local church, it's, it's, it's a global movement. It's something that's bigger than us. It's something that's bigger than this little corner of South Carolina that we're in. This means that it can't be a white church movement or a black church movement. It can't be a men's movement or a women's movement. It can't be a Republican movement or a Democratic movement. It can't be an American movement or an Asian movement. It can't be a millennial movement or a boomer movement. It's every man, woman, and child from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the global family of the redeemed with the same blood of Jesus pumping through our veins, united by his spirit, breaking down every barrier of age and ethnicity and race as we gather together to sing the song of the redeemed. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the mission that he's called us to. And this is what I fear is happening in our culture. And I promised you in January, I'm gonna annoy you with this all year long. Promise. For some of you, this is still a political solution. It's still a political solution. You're trying to fight all of these battles on the wrong front. And it's not that we totally disconnect our political engagement from our spiritual engagement. You know, it's amazing here in Acts chapter one, if you go back in verses six through seven, what causes Jesus to give these instructions to his disciples is that his disciples come to him and they ask this question, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? As we studied in the gospel of Mark for for two years together as a church family, we know what the disciples were expecting was a political revolution. What the disciples were expecting was a military conquest where they were overflow, overthrow Rome and then Israel would be restored to global prominence. And how does Jesus respond to that? He tells them in verse seven, he says, it's not for you to know the timing of those things. It's not for you to be worried about. This is what you need to be worried about, being filled with the power of my spirit and taking the message of the gospel to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is your primary mission. And and listen, I, I just worry that way too many of you are worshiping right now at the wrong altar. Listen, I'm on Facebook too. 
right? Like, and and I, I, I see these things too, and it blows my mind how many professing followers of Christ, you won't find one syllable about Jesus, but man, an opportunity to attack your political opponent, you're on it. We're worshiping at the wrong altar. This is the mission that God has given to his church, this mission of advancing the gospel, of making disciples. Again, it's not that it's mutually exclusive from our political engagement, but this is the primary mission of the church. This is the primary mission of the church. Christ alone is the exclusive path to salvation. You need to understand, it does not matter who you get into the White House, they will not save anyone's soul. This is Christ alone. This is the mission of the church, and this is where we're called to be engaged. The question you and I have to ask ourselves this morning is God calls us into this mission is not, are we sent, but will we go? Because we've been sent. We've been given our instructions here in Matthew 28. So what does it look like for you to go? A few weeks ago, I shared about uh, William Carey, um, who was uh, known to us today as the father of modern missions. And uh, William Carey had a very close friend that not as many people know about named Andrew Fuller. And uh, Andrew Fuller was a supporter of William Carey's ministry. And so before Carey left for India, he famously turned around and he looked at his friend Fuller and he, he said to him, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. I'll go down into the pit if you hold the ropes. And when it comes to this task of fulfilling the great commission to the ends of the earth, we need to understand we need both. We need both. Here's the reality. Not every single person in this room is going to be called to take the gospel cross-culturally. That's not going to be the call on every single follower of Jesus. Again, some are called to Jerusalem. Some are called to Judea and Samaria. Some will be called to the ends of the earth. And the location of your mission does not make you a better or lesser Christian. Every lost person, this side of hell needs to hear the gospel. Some of that's going to be here locally. Some of that's going to be in other parts of our state or of our country. For some, it's going to be to the ends of the earth. Our calling is to be faithful wherever God places us and sends us. That's our calling. So, so we don't want to get in a position of thinking like there's some people who are just super Christians, although there's a lot to be said about somebody who sells everything and, and leaves behind their family, moves across the globe into a, a deep, dark jungle to take the gospel to people who don't even speak the same language as them. There, there's a lot to be said about this, but our worth and our value aren't determined in what we do for God. It's in what God has done for us and giving us his son, Jesus. And our calling is to be faithful wherever we are. For some, depending on your gifting, it's going to be going into the pit. And for many others, it's going to be to hold the rope. But we are all called to do something. So what's the Lord calling you to do? How's the Lord calling you to be engaged in, in this work? I want to give us just three questions for reflection and application uh, as we start to wrap things up today. Because here's what I hope happens this morning. Here's what I want to happen. It, it'd be really, really easy for before this message, you know, we sat down with some people and we had a meeting and we logged onto the website of a missions agency and we saw a need somewhere and hey, there's an opportunity to send 12, 15 people. And, and we, we pitched that opportunity this summer. We say, hey, come get on board with that. And listen, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. that that's, that's a great picture. But here's the beauty of a church plant. Here, here's the beauty of, of a church in a situation like ours is that we have the freedom to dream from the ground up what our engagement with the nations is going to look like. And I think something that would be really, really sad this morning is, is if you hear a message like this and we get excited and we're fired up and, and we want to we drop everything and go across the, across the globe somewhere for, for Jesus. You know, those of you who are doing the Bible reading plan, this past week we were walking through the Gospel of Luke where Jesus gives that hard call of discipleship, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But then in the same breath, he turns around, he tells the people, listen, count the cost. 
Don't, don't just jump into this aimlessly. Like, don't just get hyped up. Jesus is, is constantly pressing against the crowd in his ministry. Listen, don't just jump on board with this because you're excited about it because you're, you're kind of having an emotional moment. I mean, seriously evaluate and count the cost of what I'm calling you into. And so this is what I hope we can begin doing this morning as a church family is to count this cost, is to begin considering what it's gonna look like for our church family to engage in this global mission. Because again, here's what we could do. We could get into a rhythm of a couple times a year, we have groups of 15, 20 people. We send them out somewhere. And we've done this before as a church family. We, we send them out somewhere. They come home, they tell us about it. We have a minimal number of people engaged in this. Or today, beginning today, we can start to pray. We can start to plan. We can start to dream and ask the question, what if instead we gathered the collective resources and gifting and energy of 500 people and ask, how is every individual person going to be engaged in this mission? Because that's going to make a global impact far greater than anything that just a small group of people. That's what we want to start doing as a church family, is asking, how are all of us going to be engaged? Who's going to go into the pit and who's going to hold the rope? So three questions for reflection for us today. The first question is this, how will you pray? How will you pray? We, we've really anchored ourselves to this as a church family for the first few weeks of the year. We started a few weeks ago in Psalm 126, that promise, those who sow in tears will reap in shouts of joy. A couple of different times we've looked at Christ's call in Luke 10 too, where he says the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. So pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So last night uh, we had our first of four quarterly corporate prayer gatherings here as a church family. We were about 70 of us. It was amazing. Uh, just gathered here together uh, for prayer and for worship. Uh, most of the group is here for about two hours. Some were here for about three hours. And this is exactly what we were doing. We we're praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers and asking that we would be the willing laborers who would go. And this is what we, we need to be doing as a church family. We, it's not just four times a year. It's in your community group tonight, praying these things together, getting on your knees by yourself every single day in your time with the Lord, praying to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers and that we would be the laborers. When Jesus ascends to heaven in Acts 1, he sends his disciples to Jerusalem with, with two instructions. And I love this. And I think this is a good foundation for us. He doesn't tell them to get to Jerusalem and get right to work. I mean, we've established this morning, the need is urgent. The need is absolutely urgent. But Jesus himself tells his disciples, listen, don't just jump into this. He gives them two instructions to pray and to wait for the Holy Spirit. So what happens on the day of Pentecost? They're gathered together, 120 of them. And what are they doing? They're praying. And what's the miracle of Pentecost? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to miraculously speak in other languages at a time when there were people gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world. And the miracle of Pentecost was that the gospel started to spread to all nations. And it happened through prayer. It was born in prayer. It wasn't just something they worked up or dreamed up on their own. They followed the instructions of Jesus. And so you can do this individually in your time with the Lord. We do this in community groups, group leaders. I hope you just make that a priority to pray these things at the beginning of group time each week as you're having your prayer time. We're gonna do this corporately uh, as a church family. We do this together every single Sunday. But, but even more specifically, again, I wanna highlight just one resource for you today. As I, I mentioned earlier, the Joshua Project. Go today, download their app, go to their website. You can daily, uh, get an update on an unreached people group, where they're located in the world, how many of them there are, what their greatest needs are, what is their access to the gospel? Do they have a Bible in their language? How can you specifically be praying for them? And, and let's just see what happens with that. Maybe the Lord births something in your heart 
for a specific distinct people group. And we as a church family get to rally around uh, how he's going to lead us out in reaching that group. So how will you pray? Second question, how will you give? Again, some are called to go into the pit. Others will be called to hold the rope. And we primarily hold the rope through our praying and through our giving. And one of my favorite questions to answer uh, about our church and about really about any church I've been a, a part of is, um, is the question of how much of our budget goes to missions, because uh, there's a really a couple of different ways we can answer that question. The easy way is to say, hey, you know, since day one as a church family, we've pledged uh, 10% of our, budge, uh, of our projected budget for a year to ministry efforts uh, outside of our walls. And so we, we've done that, been able to do that by God's grace for, for three years as a church family. And so some of that's local, some of that is, is across our state, some of that's uh, global. Um, so as a church cooperating with the Southern Baptist Convention, a portion of our giving each month goes to the cooperative program, which supports the International Mission Board, which uh, supports the work of 3,700 missionaries today globally, uh, engaged. 800 people groups. Uh, as a church family, we've also got a sponsorship of a church uh, through World Orphans, uh, where we've sent a team before, haven't been able to send teams the last two years because of civil unrest. But uh, one of the ways we support is just through our giving to the local church. And I can confidently tell you for our church family, our giving is not just an immediate focus, it's a global focus, it is, is by doing this. So that's one way to answer the question. But the other way to answer the question is like this, is that 100% of our giving goes to missions because the local church is the mission. As we send out people to the ends of the earth, as we send out disciple makers to make other disciples, what do those disciples form in those locations? Churches. The local church is the mission. This is the mission. It's to send people out to do exactly what we've been able to do here. It's to have healthy, multiplying, gospel-centered communities that are making disciples of all nations. So how will we pray? How will we give? But again, you, you want something that's even a little bit more personal. I would just encourage you to get, go check out the ministries of Compassion International, of World Orphans, the International Mission Board. Find a missionary you can personally support. One that I like to support annually is the work of uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators. I'm passionate about everybody having a Bible uh, in their language that they can understand. What can you do? But, you know, I think all of us, it, it's, it never hurts a, a couple times a year to go through our budget and figure out, hey, what can I eliminate? How, how can I spare up $15, $20, $50 a month, $500 a year, $1,000 a year, whatever that is to support the work that God is doing globally? So how will we pray? How will you give last? How will you go? How will you go? Again, not every single person here is going to be called to take the gospel cross-culturally. None of us are called to go everywhere, but every one of us are called to go somewhere. For some, it's going to be right here in Beaufort, our Jerusalem. For others, it's going to be Judea, Samaria, so broader South Carolina or domestically somewhere else in the United States. But then for others, it's going to be answering the call to go to the nations, to go to the corners of the earth. Back in the fall, uh, I attended a conference in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, J.D. Greer, who pastors the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham area, he's the uh, current president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He was preaching on our responsibility to the nations. And uh, if you don't know J.D.'s story, he uh, himself, he spent a few years overseas in a predominantly Muslim country before he came back to the United States to pastor Summit. And if you don't know about Summit, uh, it is a, a very large uh, multi-site congregation in the RDU area that has a big God vision to plant a thousand churches in this generation. And if that sounds crazy to you, that uh, what's even crazier is that they're actually well on their way to meeting the goal. They'll probably crush it here in the next 10 years. And you look at something like that. I don't know a single person on this planet making a greater global impact from where they are than J.D. Greer. And he said something in this message, though, that absolutely stunned me. 
How in spite of all of that, in spite of everything that God has been able to do through him and through his family, how every single year, he and his wife, Veronica, at the beginning of the year, they get on their knees before the Lord and they ask if this might be the year that he's sending them back out to the nations. And that's something that as he shared it that day, it really just pierced me to my heart. Because I knew in that moment as he was sharing those things that I was at that point in time not willing to pray that prayer. You see, what I had done in my life is I think I had felt like maybe I had a past, like I've already kind of done this. Like we moved our family away from family in North Carolina down here to a community where we knew nobody simply because we were just trying to follow the call of God in our lives. Now, in my mind, I'm like, hey, Lord, I, I kind of get a pass on that, right? Like, I feel like I've done that, you know, once before. And, and, and it's, it's been my prayer that if it's his will, that he gives me 40 years to do ministry right here in, in this community. But I was just so challenged by what he said. Because in that point in time, I, I wasn't even willing to consider that God might have that for me. And so over the last six months, the Lord has just done a lot of, uh, of work in, in my heart. And can I be perfectly honest with you? There's mornings where I've asked him to. There's mornings I've said, send me out. Like, God, why have you put me? My greatest passion in life is to share the gospel, is to make you known. Why have you put me in a community where hundreds, thousands of people have heard the gospel hundreds, thousands of times when there are people on this planet who have never even heard your name? And so I've had mornings. I've said, Lord, I'm here. I'm here. Send, send me out. And the Lord has just made it abundantly clear for six months now that he wants me right here in my Jerusalem. And so I just feel like my call, if, unless that ever changes, is just to stand here, just to annoy us every week over this, to, to stir us up, to get us fired up. And so again, the question this morning for you, I, I don't want you to make some sort of empty emotional decision here in the moment. What I do want to challenge you to begin praying today is this. If you're not willing to pray, Lord, would you make me willing to even consider it? You just got to start there. Lord, would you make me willing to consider that maybe you have something different for my family and I, that maybe we would be among those who will go to a place in this world where no one has ever heard the message of the gospel and use us to advance your glory and your name to the end of the age. Are you willing this morning to just lay your life as a blank check before the Lord and say, you fill in the details. My life is not my own. My family is not my own. My house is not my own. My cars are not my own. My money is not my own. Nothing that I have is my own. For me, this church is not my own. To be able to lay that before him and say, this all belongs to you. It was all yours first and foremost. You've given it to me as a steward. I want to lay it all before you as a blank check before you and say, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you send, I will faithfully and obediently follow your lead. And this is my promise to you as a pastor. Again, this morning, we're, we're not just throwing dartboard opportunities out to you this morning. We, we want to begin something today as a church family, is to begin prayer, is to begin conversation. There are going to be opportunities this year. There's representatives from, from some missions agencies that we're going to get to hear from and learn from, and you can learn how to leverage your life as an individual for the advance of the gospel. But this morning, what I want us to begin doing as a church family is to count the cost. And for every one of us to lay our lives as a blank check before the Lord and give him permission to fill in the details. And this is my promise to you this morning as a pastor. Is that if you are one that the Lord is just, you're stirring in your heart and, and pressing you in a direction. And you're willing to stand up and say, I'll go down into the pit. My promise to you as a pastor and as a church family is that we'll hold the rope. That you may go by yourself, but you will not go alone. 
that you get to go in the promise of the Holy Spirit, who, who's promised to be with us to the end of the age, who will never leave us and forsake us, and with the support of a church family that's saying, we've got your back. We're going to pray and we're going to give so that you can go. So this morning, this is what, what I want us to do as we close out. There's, there's a big cost to be counted here. But I believe with all of my heart that there's going to be many within our church family in the years to come who are going to count the cost and determine that it's absolutely worth it. Because this is the goal. This is what we're running to. Not just to get you on a mission. This is where all this is going. The picture that John gives us in Revelation 7. He says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Church, the day is coming when the mission is going to be over. The day is coming when the mission is going to be over, but even though the mission is going to come to an end, our worship will have just begun. We'll just be getting started. So until then, here's what we're going to do. We will cause his name to be remembered in all generations. That's the mission. That's the mission, but it's temporary. What's the goal? Say it with me. So that the nations will praise him forever and ever. So Father, that's our prayer. That we would today be faithful to be on the temporary mission that you've given us, keeping our eyes on the eternal goal of seeing every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around your throne, singing to the risen lamb. God, would you begin in someone's heart this morning, a stirring for all of us, Lord, that we would be willing to lay down every piece of our lives before you and give you permission to fill in all the details and say that you can have it all. God, help us to be a church that is faithfully fulfilling what you've given us to do to the ends of the earth, starting right here in Beaufort. 